we'll be going to that later on in the message. But we're going to start with Philippians chapter 1, and our text this evening is verse 6. But I'll be reading the first 11 verses. Let's give our attention to God's word tonight. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all. Making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's ask his blessing on his word. God in heaven, you are the the God, the living God, the speaking God who creates galaxies with a word. And Lord, you have the power to create faith in our hearts, even though our hearts might be dead or apathetic tonight. And so we pray that you will, that you will. We pray, Lord, that this word would be bread, good life-giving bread and life-giving water, that we would hear the voice of our Savior in his word tonight, and hearing respond with faith and joy. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who've been at Harvest for a while, you know that Philippians 1 verse 6 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It is a wonderful reminder of and a mighty aid towards gospel assurance and bold confidence. I think we tend to underestimate the great value of boldness and true assurance and confidence. Those are the things that are the fuel for Christian joy. And Christian joy, as we know, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Uh, One of the things that makes us markedly different uh, is people who live in a a world where there's often despair and confusion and hopelessness is Christians are called to live not just a chipper, happy, uh, blessed lives, having just more of the things that the world wishes they could have. Uh, Christians uh, have uh, a deep abiding confidence and hope and joy even without the things that the world wishes uh, that they had, or the, the, the things that the world uh, thinks bring joy. I remember um, Eric Hausler telling the story once of uh, being in Russia, and he was um, walking with his guide, who was uh, an unbeliever, but they were walking through a village, and uh, the, uh, a Russian man came walking the other, from the other direction, and as, as this Russian man walked past, he muttered under his breath, American. That's the best Russian accent I have. And the, Eric said to his guide, he said, how does he know I'm American? I mean, he looked at his clothes. He looked pretty much like everybody else. 
And the guide said to him, you have hope in your face. And Americans apparently are just known in Russia for expecting that life is going to be okay, uh, that life is going to be good. There was hope there. Well, that should be sort of a mark of Christians. Uh, when people walk by, you know, we should hear them, Christian. They have hope in their face. They have joy in their hearts. There's a confidence about them. Well, how do you get that? Well, we get it from the Bible. Uh, the Bible is written for the confident joy of the believer. Uh, John writes in his uh, chapter 20, verse 31 of his gospel, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. John wants his readers to believe in Jesus and then experience the life that's in Christ. Paul is writing for the same thing. He prays, Romans 15, 13, now may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that the Christian should expect to experience genuine joy and true peace in believing. And then the, so the Bible is written, you see, to give us reasons for that joy, reasons for that assurance. The problem is that too often we tend to not really pay attention to the reasons that God has given us in Scripture. And so there's a tendency, I think, that is pretty universal among Christians, and that is to think about our Christian life in very subjective terms, to think about our Christian life according to what we are experiencing, what we're feeling, what is the nature of our uh, circumstances. So if I would ask you tonight to, to tell me about your Christian life, my assumption, I think that most of you would, would think that I'm asking about your prayer life or your devotional life or how are you doing with, uh, with battling a besetting sin? How are you doing in the, the, the road of sanctification? And so I think most of you would respond by talking about those things. Well, I'm not doing as well as I'd like, but I think I'm doing a little better than last year. I think I'm making some progress, or I've made this new attempt. I've got a new devotional, and, and I've started reading that, and that seems to be going okay. Or I got a new devotional, and uh, it's not going well at all. It would, it would, we'd be talking about what, what we're experiencing. Or maybe you had a good year, and you'd, you'd, you'd be saying, the Lord's been so kind. I got, got a new job. I, I got married this year. Uh, my little baby went off to kindergarten. That's good. Uh, my little baby left for college, that's even better. <clears throat> but you would be thinking about, you see, the things that are happening. <clears throat> to you. Well, that's not, all the good stuff, you see, is, is outside of us. To think about our Christian life in terms of what we're experiencing misses the, the, the best parts of the Christian life, the most hope-giving parts of the Christian life. The, the very best thing about being a Christian is not subjectively what is happening or what is not happening in my current circumstances, no matter how blessed those things might be. The very best things are the objective things, the things that are true for you and about you, but outside of you. Those are the things that 
will make you delirious with joy if you're paying attention to them. You see, the best things are not what you are thinking or you are feeling or you are doing. The best things is what God is thinking and what God is doing and what God is promising regarding you. And so the title of our message tonight is The Joy of a Gospel Perspective. The Joy of a Gospel Perspective. Uh, my first experience with this, and I've, I've told this story before, but uh, I think it's helpful to just to capture why this matters. And, and I think the point of the text, when I was a little guy, probably 11 years old, <clears throat> we had a new preacher. Excuse me. And, um, uh, I remember clearly him preaching a sermon about prayer and how when we pray, we talk to God and God talks back to us, which I don't remember hearing before. But So I thought that night I would try it. And so uh, when I did, said my bedtime prayers that night, I waited for God to talk back, and uh, I heard nothing, so I prayed again, and heard nothing, I tried it again, a little more fervent this time, heard nothing, and came to the conclusion, I had enough Reformed theology to believe that I must be reprobate. So, probably not a common thought for 11 years old, but that I was just putting the dots together, right? God loves his children, um, I'd heard about election and reprobation, and so I must be. So that was very disappointing to me, uh, and I was despairing, and I started to cry. And my twin brother uh, there in that uh, upstairs bedroom um, could not figure out this was not a normal thing for me to do. So he asked, what's wrong? And I couldn't really explain to him what's wrong. So finally he called for help. Uh, Mom, Dad, Dale's crying. So uh, they invited me downstairs uh, and it was, um, I can just see it so clearly. Uh, They offered me a cup of coffee. My first cup of coffee, I I told the people in Joliet, uh, coffee is the Dutch answer for whatever ails you. And so, a um, cup of coffee, and then they opened the Bible, and Philippians 1, verse 6, and I remember Dad saying, uh, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So, if you have any desire for a relationship with God, that didn't come from you, that comes from God. Uh, if you have any concern about your sin, that you didn't come up with that, that that's God. And, and so, you see, suddenly it took me outside of myself, outside of what I was experiencing. My Christian life wasn't about what I was trying to do uh, or what I was feeling. It's about what God was doing. And that changes everything. And that's exactly what Paul talks about here in our, uh, our text tonight. It's what God is doing. And so the points, if you're taking notes, uh, our salvation is first, it's God's work. Secondly, it's a good work. Third, it's a guaranteed work. And finally, it's a glorious work. It's God's work. It's a good work, it's a guaranteed work, and it's a glorious work. First, our salvation is God's work. He who began a good work in you. And that, that's the main point. That's the central point that Paul's making. That he, he's rejoicing over these, these believers in Philippi because Paul has a keen sense that this church exists by the specific design and purpose and plan of God. And for that, we're going to go back to Acts chapter 16. If you would just turn with me to Acts 16. Acts 16, we're going to read verse 6 through 15. This is how the church in Philippi began. So Paul's on his missionary journey. We read, when they went through the region, verse 6, of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. 
So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside, to the, outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so Paul... He remembers the story. He remembers how the church in Philippi happened. They were just seeking to get into Asia and, and plant churches there, but the Holy Spirit kept closing doors. And then, then a vision, Paul had a vision, and a man from Macedonia it's, clearly says, come and help us, and they conclude, that is, this means that God wants us to go to Macedonia. And so they immediately head to Macedonia. Philippi is the leading city, and so they go straight to uh, Philippi. They end up by a riverside where they assume there would be some Jewish worshipers there. They speak the gospel message. The Lord opens the heart of a lady named Lydia. She comes to faith. Her household is baptized, and the church in Philippi uh, is started. All of it, you see, Nothing but the hand of God. Paul and, and uh, did not just say, you know, I think we should go here. Or he didn't just point to a map and say, let's try this. This was clearly in their mind a, a work of God. And that's exactly the story you see for every personal, uh, every person's story. That's every Christian's story. That you're, you're, not an, you're not accidentally a Christian. And maybe you say, well, I just kind of grew up in a Christian home. And, and, and that might be. How did you get in that Christian home? It wasn't an accident. You didn't just end up there. The living God, whatever brought you to faith, the living God sovereignly intervened and arranged and purposed that very thing to take place in your life. To be a Christian is to be a miraculous act of God. A miracle is what we are. A definition I found of a miracle is this. A miracle is a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws. Now, that's exactly uh, what the gospel is. What the, the work of regeneration where God takes a dead heart and makes it a new heart. That is a surprising and welcome event not explicable by natural or scientific laws. There was nothing natural or explicable about Paul's conversion as he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And our story is just as unlikely. It's just as unlikely that you would be a Christian, given the truth about your naturally dead heart and the fact that dead sinners cannot raise themselves to life. I don't care how many Sundays you're in church. You cannot make yourself alive. 
But if you are genuinely a Christian, if you are someone who, who really believes that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, has entered this world through an incarnate birth, and you believe that that Jesus lived a sinless life, and that Jesus went to die on a cross to atone for sin, to propitiate the wrath of God, and that that Jesus is able, by his righteous sacrifice, to cover your sin and to reconcile you to the God who made you in his image, that that uh, Jesus is able to give you a new life and able to give you a hope for everlasting life, a confident hope, if, you, if, if the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin so that you grieve your sin, it, it, it frustrates you, it, it, makes you, it makes you weep when you, when you see your hard heart, when you see your, your idols and besetting sin, when you, when you hear your, your, your mouth say wicked, hurtful things, when you see your heart long for vile, uh, filthy things. There, there's a concern in your, in your heart about those things. If you're convinced that the, the truth is that this, this world and its pleasures are passing away, and even if you could have all of them, they would not satisfy your soul. And you have a hunger that, for eternal things and lasting things and good things, pure things. Well, that, then you're a recipient of, of God's mighty work of sovereign grace. God has begun a good work in you. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. That's what's happened. And so when, when Paul sees these believers in Philippi, that's what he's delighting about. That's what he's rejoicing over. And this, he reminds them of this. You see, he wants them uh, to remember this, to know this, to, because this is a, is a source of tremendous joy in a believer's life. Now, how does that work? Well, let me, let me try to use this illustration. Um, young people. Nice, right here. Um, Imagine, just imagine, I'm not, I'm not saying anything, but just imagine being interested in a member of the opposite sex. And imagine, um, we remember this, right, These, this, this time? Remember, uh, you thought about her, you think about her all the time, you, you're constantly worrying about how you look, you're, you're trying to impress her with being witty or, or clever or good at something and often it doesn't go well. But you're working really hard to, to have her notice you, to have her admire you, to have her like you, but she seems like she's way out of your league. She's way too beautiful. She's way too smart. She's way too good. And, and uh, so you, you just cannot work up the courage to ask her out. And so your primary experience in this awkward stage is um, hard work and hopeful wishing mixed with despair and an ongoing sense of failure. And that's how lots of people live their Christian life. They hope God likes them. They, w they really wish that he would, and they, and they try hard to do the right things. But, but their failures just seem to be 
just too often and too grievous, too many. And so they, they can't be deeply confident that God actually does love them. And, and a, a genuine, intimate, joyful relationship with God is something that they, they hope will happen someday. They think it might, and until then, they'll just keep working hard. Until then, they'll keep dealing with the failure and the frustration. Just keep on hoping, keep on trying. Well, what if, young men... What if um, one of her friends came to you and, and, and said um, to you, uh, wake up, don't you realize she is, she is actively pursuing you? And, and, and here's a note from her, and you open the note and it says, here's my number, call me. That changes everything. Right now you have confidence. She wants me to call her. Are you sure it's from her? This is her handwriting? It's not, it's not a joke, right? No, no, no. This is from her. Call her. Here's her number. That would be a good day. Friends, that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. God is the pursuer. It was not I that found, O oh Savior, true. I was found. God is always the pursuer. Come to the waters. All you who are thirsty, come, come, drink. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to our God. He will abundantly pardon. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. The Bible is just full of invitations. God calling sinners, turn, turn. Why would you die, O house of Israel? Come to me. That's the wonder of the gospel. And that's a, that's, that's a great source of expectation and assurance and confidence because you see the beginning of your faith was not up to you it was it was up to God you see if it were up to you you would always be wondering was I was I good enough was it good enough was I sincere enough so you have in many churches unfortunately people who are rededicating their life and rededicating their life and rededicating their life with the with the utmost sincerity because the last time didn't seem to work Maybe it wasn't well-meant enough. Maybe it wasn't sincere enough. But you, but you see, it doesn't, it doesn't rest on us. We will never be well-meant enough. We'll never be sincere enough. But you see, the, 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 the question isn't, what have you done, but what has God done? You don't need to look back for assurance to a moment when you did something, when you said a prayer, when you walked an aisle, when you got really serious. That's not where you're going to find your assurance. Your assurance will be when you look back and see that God has done something. God sent a son and sacrificed that son on a cross for you, for me. And now if there's any faith at all in my life, even though it's frightfully weak and imperfect, if there's any longing for God, any desire to do his will, any thankfulness for his mercy, any hunger for eternal things, that is a work of God. You didn't come up with it. You're a miracle. But you see, it's that external, objective truth that is the foundation for our confidence. Let me just read you a quote from Mike Horton in his book, In the Face of God. <clears throat> he says, <clears throat> Biblical Christianity is concerned with what happened outside us. 2,000 years ago, outside the city of Jerusalem, it is centered on what happened externally, not what happens internally. 
Nothing that happens within me is the gospel. Rather, the gospel is that he was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. The good news is about what happened to Christ. Because of my failure to believe enough, to obey enough, to serve enough, to love enough. We can stop focusing on what's happening inside us. My heart may still be corrupt. My conscience may still condemn me. My soul may hold on to Christ weakly and clumsily. But Christ was crucified for me. And no experience can obstruct that reality. It is finished once and for all. That's a source for confidence. That's a source for hope. God has begun a good work. And it's an amazing good work. It's astonishing good work. The, the Greek re- word here is agathos, which can be translated excellent. It doesn't just mean good, like when, when you come home from work and the wife says, how was your day? And you say, it was good. Which says absolutely nothing, right? But, but that we just use the word good as it wasn't, no tragedies. It was okay. It was, it was fine. That's not this word. Uh, this word is reserved for uh, the things that are excellent. God is agathos. God is good. It, it's, the, it's the highest use of the word. And, and, and the, our salvation is this. It's a most excellent work. And it's, and it's most excellent on ev- by, by every uh, standard, by, by every definition. If, if, if something is beautiful or noteworthy, we'll say that was good. Great music, great art is, is good. If something is loving and kind and helpful, it's good. If it ministers to a deep need, like adoption does, just as an example. Well, a little baby doesn't have a family, doesn't have a home, and, and now is brought into a family, into a home. That, that's a good thing. Well, in, in any way you can measure goodness, our salvation is a good work. What is more excellent than the God glorifying his name in rescuing lost rebels? People who by nature were opposed to him in every way and doing so at the cost of his own son. What is more loving and helpful than, than for the living God to rescue spiritually dead people headed for everlasting judgment and making them his children and giving them an inheritance of everlasting glory with him in heaven? You see, what, what could be better than that? We have no greater need than to be rescued from the judgment that we deserve. And God could do no greater thing. This is such a magnificent thing. The angels in heaven gasp in wonder and worship in awe. There's the great work of God. The greatest work of God is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And it's true, you see, for every believer. This isn't a good work that belongs to a certain class of Christians, every believer can say, God has done a good work in me. He's doing a good work in me. There's no good in me, no agathos, no good in me, but in Christ, I've been given 
Good thing after good thing after good thing. Jesus has given me a precious faith. Jesus has given me as a gift his own imputed righteousness. Jesus has given me everlasting life. Jesus has given me his Holy Spirit. Jesus has given me a relationship with the Father. Jesus has poured out his grace on me. He has poured out his love on me. He's promised me an everlasting life in a new heaven and a new earth. God has begun a good, good work in me. Someday, um, we'll see all the glory of it. But for now, we just we need to believe in it. Because you see, this sort of levels these circumstances of our life. This just puts everything into perspective. That whatever we're experiencing, good or bad, nothing compares to this. This good work. And, and the beauty is, it's a guaranteed work. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work will, will carry it on to completion. Isn't that good news? It's, it's great comfort knowing that, that the work that God has begun, he's going to complete it. Its completion is not up to me. It's not up to you. And of course, it has to be that way. I don't know. Most of us, I think, are far better at beginning things than completing things. Some of us have made it an art form. God isn't like that. So, William Hendrickson, God is not like men. Men conduct experiments. God fulfills his plan. I love that. Men conduct experiments. Let's try this. Let's, let's, give, this a, let's give this a try. God doesn't conduct experiments. God fulfills his plan. And we see that in everything that God does. Barnes writes this, God abandons nothing that he undertakes. There are no unfinished worlds or systems, no half-made or forsaken works of his hands. There's no evidence in his works of creation of a change of plan or having forsaken what he began from disgust or disappointment or lack of power to complete them. You know, you don't find galaxies that it sort of wobble. It didn't get quite done. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. And, and Barnes says, why then should there be in the salvation of our soul? Boys and girls, can you think of any of Jesus' miracles that sort of flopped in the end? Right, where they turned the water into wine, but, I mean, it was wine. No, no, it was the best wine. Isn't it wonderful that God knows how to make the very best wine? He knows what he's doing, and he does it with a word. I love that. When Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves, they don't just calm down a bit, right? They'll come from like 10 foot to 3 feet, and he says to the disciples, I think we can manage this. When Jesus says, peace, be still, calm. And the disciples are terrified at such power. That's the way God works. They didn't help Lazarus right out of the grave and back to his sickbed. When he came out, he was full of health. That's how God works. And there's nothing you see to keep that from happening in your life and my life because our lives, our salvation is a work of God. There's no reason that he should stop what he's begun. You can't say, well, he, he doesn't have the power, or there's an enemy he didn't figure on, a difficulty he had not imagined or, or foreseen. 
In fact, the truth is, and this is so wonderful, the truth is that there's every reason for God to finish the work. Every reason to finish it all the way to its completion. Let me just list some, but you could add many more to this. There's the reason of his son. He sent Jesus, his beloved son. This is my son, whom I dearly love. Listen to him. That son, the beloved only begotten son of God, the father sent to a cross to suffer the wrath of divine justice, bearing our sin. For God to abandon your salvation is to abandon his son and the sacrifice his son made for you. For God to abandon your salvation is to abandon his honor because he's attached his honor to the salvation of his elect. For any of God's elect to be lost would mean that God has failed in his purpose. His honor is lost. It would be a failure of the love of God. It was in love that he predestined us. And it was because of his great love that he sent his son that whosoever would believe in him. And for God to abandon his work in your life would be God to stop his love. Well, his love doesn't stop. It would be for God to ignore his own justice because it was justice that took place on the cross. The demands of the law were satisfied on the cross. And for God now to abandon your salvation after putting his son to death for your sin would be God to violate justice. His decree, which cannot be broken, would be broken. His faithfulness, which is everlasting unto everlasting, would not be everlasting. And you can multiply reasons to this. Do you understand how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word? Is there anything that God could do to make it more certain, more sure, to, make, to give you another reason or a better reason for absolute confidence in the work that God is doing? I cannot think of anything. And you see, because God is doing this incredible work, we can have the confidence, as Paul does, that it's going to be completed on the glorious day of Jesus Christ, the day of completion in Christ Jesus. It's a tremendously significant event. It's, it's, it's the defining day of the New Testament when the heavens are going to split open and Jesus Christ is going to descend on the clouds of heaven in all of his glory when every knee will bow down before him. But you see, our joy is knowing the critical role, the critical part that we play on that day. We will not just be bystanders with the rest of the world seeing the glory of Jesus. We will not even be like the angels caught up in worshiping the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. The Bible says that we will share the glory of Jesus, that, that we will be presented before the angels in heaven and before all of mankind. We will be presented as the bride of Jesus Christ, the one that he loved so much he gave his life and purchased with his blood. We will be brought forth as the bride of Christ. We will share the glory. The glory will be ours in a way that it does not even belong to the angels. And, and, the, and the, the amazing thing is nothing can prevent that from happening. It can't be taken away from us. 
J.C. Ryle says, the, the true Christian's possession shall never be taken from him. He alone of all mankind shall never be stripped of his inheritance. Kings must one day leave their palaces. Rich men must one day leave their money and their lands. They only hold them until they die. But the poorest saint on earth has a treasure of which he will never be deprived. The grace of God and the favor of Christ are riches no man can take from him. They will go with him to the grave when he dies. They will rise with him on the resurrection morning. They will be his to all eternity. Friends, that's what we have in Jesus Christ. We have a faithfulness that will never be removed. We have a life that will never end. A gift that can never be lost. A hand that will never lose its hold. A chain that will never be broken. A love that will never let go. A calling that will never be revoked. A foundation that cannot be shaken. A city not built with human hands. A kingdom which will never fall. And an inheritance which will never fade. And that's yours. That's yours. By faith in Jesus Christ. The question then... I would ask is, has God begun that good work in your life? Can you, do you see how impoverished you are? If, if God is not doing this work in your life, do you see how, how empty, how bankrupt you are? What, what it would be, what a, what a tragedy it would be to live in this world and to have all this available to you and yet be, and even to have heard about it and to know about it and yet turn away from it? Do, do you see how eternally devastating that choice could be? And so has God begun this good work in you? And how can you, how can you tell? Well, do you believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of God? Are you convinced that's true? And, and do you believe that Jesus actually died on a cross and that your sin was there and that Jesus was willing to die for your sin? And, and do you have a desire to, to come under the covering, the atoning covering of, of Christ? Do you want to know Jesus that way? Do you want to serve him? then, friend, God has begun a good work in you. And the work that he's begun, he's going to carry on until the day of completion. And he wants us to know it. He wants us to be assured of it. And if you're not assured tonight, then I would just beg you to, to talk to the Lord about it. Get on your knees tonight. And say, Lord, I want that assurance. I want that peace. I want that joy. I want to have that confidence. God has called us to trust in the work that he's doing, to rejoice in the work that he's doing, to experience the confident joy of the redeemed, the confident joy of a bride waiting for her promised wedding day. Friends, that is what we are. May God grant it. Amen. Father in heaven, we are a humbled by the magnitude of your gospel that you have devoted yourself from eternity past to our salvation. And we grieve, Father, how little thought we often give to it, how little time we spend to understand our riches in Christ or get to know Jesus how eagerly we pursue things that are passing away, how angry we can be when 
things are taken from us, never suspecting that you are in the process of rescuing us. And so, Father, I pray that tonight by your Spirit, you would reorient our thinking, our attitudes, in light of the work that you are doing, the work that matters more than anything else in all of our life. It doesn't matter how much money we're going to make. It doesn't matter who we marry. It doesn't matter how many children, how, um, how our career progresses. What matters for deep joy and confidence is the work that you do for sinners in Christ. And Father, if there be any here tonight who do not, do not know the truth of that work, Lord God, have, have mercy, have mercy, lest that soul be lost forever in the in the very shadow of the greatness of God's work. And Father, for those of us who've come to faith but have maybe um, gotten calloused in our soul, and we have a faint love for Christ, Lord, may this stir us up to see Jesus as our life, our only hope, our only joy. And I pray, Lord God, that um, we would then find the joy of the Lord as we think about the confidence, the assurance we have that if you've begun a good work, nothing can keep us from being presented one day without spot and with great joy in the presence of Jesus Christ and given to him as his bride. So Lord, assure us, bless us with that peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.